0: Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face, if not, on Zoom. We hope you will, commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. More emotive than ours. He thinks coming to Common Thread is like coming to a TED talk and Fair enough. So um, for this morning, if you if you feel the urge to let an amen or a uh, tell the truth or, a, you know, something like that loose, go for it. it. It won't bother any of us at all. So we're going to be talking about um, community this morning. And whoops, I went backwards. There we go. And that's a word that gets thrown around in a lot of different ways. You might see an ad for a home builder that talks about an exclusive community. Obviously, that's not really what we're talking about at Common Thread. Um, You come here and we have this word. We talk about communal practices. And we talk about working the circle. And uh, just what, what does that really mean? How is that different from some of the other uses of the word community? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I remember, I've been around here long enough, that I remember when we uh, were at a point in church life where many of us had been deconstructing, and as a church we had deconstructed faith for quite a while. And we were sort of at a point where we were thinking, okay, what now? And uh, we realized, uh, Doug realized and, and brought this up, we're talking about Fowler's stages of faith, like he mentioned several weeks ago, that it would be really helpful to have some specific practices that would guide us without some of the toxic parts of spiritual practices that we had before. And the now famous circle is really the uh, the result of that. In the circle, all the parts are interconnected. It's a circle, it's not a stair step, it's not a linear progression. You don't do communal practices and then graduate from that and do contemplative. We keep doing all the practices all the time. Maybe at different points in our lives we might focus more on one than another or different parts, different times in our church life we might focus more on one than the other. But we, we keep all of them going in some sort of flow that continues really for the rest of our lives. We never perfect this. I see you ones. We never perfect this. Another really important point to remember about the circle is that the practice is not the thing. And that is important because the reason that all that deconstructing had to happen is that the church, in the church, we made the practices the thing, and then they got toxic. So we don't want that to happen we wanna realize that some of these practices are great, but they're stepping stones on the journey. So for example, one of the practices in the communal quadrant is life story groups. Life story groups are wonderful, I love life story groups. And life story groups help us to learn how to be authentic and share our own story in a trusting environment where we can then form relationships and grow out of that. But becoming a real communal person and a, and a real community involves way more than that. That's just one practice. That's not the thing. It's something to help us get to the thing. And it's really important that we keep that in mind when we're talking about each of these uh, quadrants. So of course this morning we're going to focus on the communal quadrant and uh, there are a few reasons that it's really important to exercise our communal quadrant muscle and I'd like to look at those. Once we do that, I'm going to tell you a story from my own life and then we'll wrap up uh, with some practical stuff and we'll have our what are you thinking questions both Here in the room, and then for those that are um, doing the live stream. So, some Bible. This will make JT happy. Some Bible. Yeah. Wow. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Um, So, the the phrase "love one another" shows up 19 times in the New Testament, and it's actually uh, if you if you take a step back and think about the New Testament for those of you that that are familiar with the Bible, and that's part of your past. Um, Much of the New Testament talks about one-anothering, loving one another, being kind to one another. It talks about how to do community life. A lot of the New Testament is really a set of letters that were written to brand new things called churches that nobody had ever done before. So how do we be a community? How do we take this? Diverse group of people, wealthy people, poor people, um, people from different countries in Rome or different parts of Rome that had come together, been conquered maybe. How do we put all that together into one community? And that's what a big chunk of the Bible is really about. So some of the verses talk about loving one another, being devoted to one another in love. That devotion um, carries with it some emphasis, some intention. We'll look at that a little bit later. My favorite one when I was preparing for this talk was the 2 Corinthians 13, 11 one, where it said, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration. I really like that. That um, stuck out to me. I've done uh, quite a bit of restoring old homes. And when I restore an old home, I always think about, taking it from where it is a mess to where it was meant to be and making it beautiful. And so I like to think about that when we talk about community, taking it from where it is, where we are right now, and making it the way it's meant to be, making it beautiful. Doing that, we uh, might consider how we can spur one another on. We all need a help. Uh, helping hand from now and then. Sometimes that's somebody to come alongside and put their arm around us. Um, sometimes it's somebody to, you know, give us a kick in the hindquarters to get us moving, whatever it takes. Beyond Bible, community, it just makes common sense, though, to me, um, we know as humans that we have this desire to move forward and grow, at least many of us do. And it sort of makes sense to us, even in our uh, individualistic Western culture, that that happens better in groups, even through our culture. Um, I've spent some time in other cultures where that's, that's not the case. We don't have that individualism so strong, and it's really, really obvious there. But even in ours, um, that's, that's important. And so there has to be a reason for that. There might be some science behind it. So we've talked about Bible. Now we're going to do some science, all in the same lesson. A um, long time ago, 2011, David Brooks wrote the Social Animal book. How many of you have read that? It's a, it's a great book. It's still a great book. Um, there's an updated version and um, that talks a lot about how we're really motivated as people. We think it's rational not so much. Uh, there's another book that was written two years later by Matthew Lieberman. Uh, he is a social neuroscientist at UCLA. Probably not a slacker. Um, and uh, there's, there's an article, if you don't want to read that whole book, um, there, there is an article called, uh, let's see, where is it? Social, um, Why Our Brains Are Required to Connect, and, or Wired to Connect, sorry about that. And it, uh, it's available on uh, Greater Good if you search that. But that article talks about three neural networks that uh, Matthew Lieberman and his research team identified in our brains. One of them is our ability to feel social pain and pleasure. It was pretty interesting because in that they discovered that somebody that was going through social pain some kind of emotionally driven social pain could take Tylenol and it would get somewhat better. Uh, the, The same pathway that we feel physical pain with, in the brain we feel social pain with. Uh, They also identified a network that allows us to read other people's emotions and then predict their behavior. We can see how that's a useful human adaptation. And uh, also our ability to absorb cultural beliefs and values that link us to a group. Well, it seems like maybe that part has gotten a little toxic in in our culture, but I was thinking about that and thinking that maybe part of the undoing of that toxic part is also done best in community. I wonder how a more specific community, a closer community can help us push back on the wider cultural norms that we might want to push back on. For example, consumerism. If, as a community, we spurred one another on towards love and good deeds that weren't centered on having the latest, greatest toy, um, but things that were more important, or helping us, like we'll talk about later with Braver Angels today, on um, bridging gaps across a normally uh, normalized, dualistic culture. How can we form a a subculture, a community that can help us push back on that. So I was thinking that there really are different levels of community when I was started. Doug asked me to do this talk a couple months ago and so I've had quite a bit of time to think about it and I started noticing the word and noticing that there are significantly different definitions of the word and understanding. So we talk about um, community in terms of geographic proximity, my neighbors, the people that live just around me, the, the triangle community we'll talk about. We talk about communities with common interests. Um, I'm a member of the YMCA community and I do yoga there. And I have friends that are parents at Conroe Elementary School and they're part of the Conroe Elementary community. But uh, the word that I would use to describe what we're talking about this morning is intentional community. It's a somewhat deeper meaning of the word that has to do, you've, you've heard Doug talk about, our need to restitch the torn fabric of community. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning. Um, things that go beyond just our common interests that we might have or our geographic proximity and help us make connections that will actually transform us as humans. One time after a a fairly early conversation in uh, my relationship with Doug and my time here at Common Thread, I had relayed some of my church background and some of the hurts that I had experienced in church. And Doug said, I'm surprised that you're even still here. Why do you still even want to be part of a church? And many of you can possibly identify with that. And I'll tell you, it's community. That was the answer that I gave Doug then. And as I thought about what I wanted to talk about this morning, I thought about several stories that I could tell you in my life about intentional, co- intentional community. There were really quite a few. and But I, I, I decided to take it back to the early part of my life because there was a, a formational time where I was in a church community that had some really... Um, toxic things going on, but at the same time was a great community. And so I chose a story from that time that I'm going to tell you. Now, when I say church community, I, it's something deeper than just coming to church on Sunday morning or checking into the live stream or even checking in once a week as we're asking to do. Um, it, it's it's church as an opportunity to really be communal. And it's a place where we can identify people to form relationships with that are necessary for transformation. Each of the other parts of the circle happen in a communal setting. And just coming on Sunday, just being in the live stream, just checking in once a week, isn't going to get us to that point of transformation. It's going to take more than that. Okay, back to my story. So in 1986, I was, I was part of this church. Um, it was uh, a church that had some formal things set up, like potlucks. We did a lot of potlucks. Um, we did small groups where we got together and interacted. But we were all at it, mostly at a time in our lives where Um, most of us didn't have a lot of money, and we very informally ended up doing life together. Almost all of our social interactions were together as a group. And we just frequently hung out and spent time and had a good time together. So my kid's mom and I had moved to this area, uh, central Pennsylvania. I was attending Penn State. Uh, We'd moved there several years before we became part of this church. We were in terrible financial shape. I was a student, um, and we had a 10-month-old son. One day, uh, my wife came to me, and when this happened, I was mostly happy, but a little bit terrified because she said um, that the test was positive, and in seven months, we were going to be expanding our family. And that was quite a surprise at the time. Um, baby number two was on the way and I had no idea how we were going to pay for baby number two. Um, didn't have health insurance, you know, it was just, it, it was scary. Little did I know at that time how much we really had to fear. Uh, three months later, I was sitting on the couch one night. We were sitting in the, in the living room, our um, older son was in bed and I noticed that my wife just would kind of squirm every few minutes. And I said, are you okay? Something looks, you know, like you're uncomfortable. And she said, ah, it's just the baby growing. Well, you know, I am an Enneagram one and I started being very observant and calculating, which we do, and I calculated that she squirmed and apparently the baby was growing very regularly every 10 minutes. And that continued for an hour. And always the worrier, I insisted on a trip to the emergency room. So the first thing we thought is, okay, let's call some folks from our community, and they would come and stay with Josiah, our number one son. And in minutes, they were at our house. Uh, they dropped what they were doing, came to our house, prepared to spend the night and, with him. And uh, we, it was a good thing because when we got to the hospital, Um, we were even more terrified when we got the news, you're in labor. This is 1986. Um, You're in labor, and the only way we have to try and stop this is um, a new drug, and it's experimental. And it doesn't usually work. And if the baby's born now, um, the baby will die. There's no, no, no hope of survival. So at that point, again... Called our friends. Within minutes, people there at the hospital. um, They spent, people spent the whole next week with us in the hospital while we were there. And then when we came home, um, they brought meals. My wife had to be on bed rest for uh, three more months. They brought meals for three months. They came to the house to empty her bedpan while I was at work for three months. This was community. About the eight month point, um, she went into labor and it was go time. When the baby was born, everything seemed great, but then um, just after I got home, picked up our son from again, someone from our community who had been watching him for three days while we were in labor and delivery. Someone uh, pick, picked him up, took him home, uh, put him to bed, went to bed myself because I had been awake for three days, and then the phone rang. And it was my wife calling from the hospital saying, Paul has stopped breathing on his own. Uh, they have him on a ventilator. Get here right away. The helicopter's on the way. I can hear the helicopter outside. So I right away, of course, called. People came, took our son again, um, a couple met us at the hospital. He, was plan- he planned to drive me behind the helicopter two hours away to Geisinger Medical Center. And uh, she was going to stay with my wife for as long as it took for no matter what the outcome would be. To be afraid together, to cry together, to hold hands. And uh, that's, that is exactly what we needed. But the story wasn't over because it took another three weeks in the hospital. They cut our grass. They took care of our son. They brought us meals. They did everything continually. So for this, at this point, this has gone on for four months. And as life returned to normal, um, by the way, that's Paul now and um, his family and as life returned to normal as normal could be with a 17-month and a newborn in the house, um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on what had just happened. It really seems like that experience, you know, as I sit here and think about it now, and I was preparing, as I was preparing this talk, I thought, you know, suppose that happened at Common Thread. Suppose there was a young family that needed that level of care. It it might seem like the care that our community gave us would be a burden. Now It was a small community. It was probably very much the size of Common Thread. We're right at, at, at about the same size. We didn't have a church building. We were meeting in the Y. Um, and... There was a lot to do in a young church. These were students. Nobody had any money. A lot of people were um, not only broke, but busy all the time. And it could seem that that experience could be viewed as a burden on the community. That's kind of what I thought about like, boy, we were really a pain. But that's not at all when I realize how it really was experienced that's not at all what it was like and when i still from time to time touch base with people from that time in my life they'll they'll say how's paul doing boy that was a that was just an amazing example of what community was like and we still think about how wonderful that time was for us because everybody pulled together it's kind of like the experience that you have in a in a really short condensed time with your neighbors after a tornado or a hurricane where everybody comes out, was a crisis that brought us all together that permanently changed us. It changed us as a church and it changed the individuals in that church such that we still keep in touch 36 years later. Have any of you read Braiding Sweetgrass? Okay, a few of you, it's it. Just an awesome book. Um, I highly recommend it. And I'm not a real, I, I like to read, I'm more visual. I'm not a real audiobook guy, but this is the exception to that rule. The audiobook of this is great because uh, the author narrates it herself. And she's just, it's just like you're sitting in your living room listening to her tell you these stories. And it's wonderful. But in this book, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer speaks a lot of wisdom. And that wisdom comes from her background as a botany professor. And also from her Native American roots. And I really, one of the themes that I really resonate with in her stories is the concept of reciprocity in community. And she pulls that reciprocity wisdom from not only human examples, but from the the um, natural world that involves people that aren't humans, as she would say. And uh, she all through the, it's a it's a theme through most of her stories where she talks about reciprocity and how foundational it is in nature. And How every human, every animal, every plant, uh, even non-living things are each given a gift by the creator. And those gifts tell us where our responsibilities are. That the gift and the responsibility are linked together permanently. You can't have one without the other. And Dr. Kimmerer makes clear that... um, it's very different from the concept that we get from our culture our culture is a consumerist culture when when i say reciprocity and as a matter of fact i went online to look for a graphic that would that would have something to do with reciprocity and every single one proved dr kimmerer's point in that it was a transaction it was How to use the law of reciprocity to sell people stuff. How to make people feel obligated to you. All of them. That's all I could find in my, you know, 15 minutes of Google searching for that graphic. And this is very different. It's not a transaction that's created when we talk about true community. It's not, I give you something, and so now you have a debt to me that you have to repay. That's how our culture thinks of reciprocity and that's not it at all. It's not quid pro quo. It's relational. The people that loved me well back in my story didn't feel like they were maybe repaying me because I had been the church treasurer. (laughs) Some things (laughs) don't change over time. Um, And they They loved me because they loved me we We had a loving community that we had built with lots of interaction and lots of time together, so that when a crisis came, we' were ready, and the crisis will come it'll each of us is going to have crisis in our lives, and the the time to build community is not when the crisis comes, it's before. I don't now feel this sense of, oh, I have to, I, I, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, a surfacy karma kind of thing. I got this gift and now I have to pay it forward. Um, that's not how I feel about it either. I feel like it's a privilege in community um, because of what I receive to take whatever gifts I have and responsibly use them to help other people grow and to help the community thrive. It is a responsibility though. So it's not a transaction. It is voluntary but there is some responsibility to it. It doesn't just happen automatically. Um, It's worth the effort that community takes. And as I was preparing uh, to tell the story that I told you uh, last Sunday I was actually sitting in a campground at, in Jordan Lake and my son Paul and his family were in the next campground to us um, and the kids were playing. And I realized that the community that took care of us and loved us created ripples of love that now are continuing through a whole nother generation. And that was really cool to see. It's difficult... Um, a, a few weeks ago um a friend that was in our um book club our common thread book club um who and this is a friend who asks particularly good questions and she asked the question she said well you know uh, well her her church background is similar to mine where you could If you were part of church, you were expected to be there on Sunday morning and pretty much any time the church door was open. And some of you are nodding and you've experienced that. And There can be a bit bit of uh, toxic associated with that. And of course, we want to leave that behind. But she said, you know, we want to leave that behind, but it's really hard because how do I know, she didn't use this word, but how do I know who's in? How do I know who is worth Really working to form community with, because it takes some mutuality and some intention. And we talked about some different opportunities at Common Thread where you can do that, and it's you know, Enneagram groups or life story groups or self-awareness. Some of the smaller groups are truly a much better way to start than a large gathering like this. Um, but even even there. There needs to be some intention. Um, This is where you might say amen. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, Carol and Kate could plan potlucks every day. And that would be great. It would be wonderful. It would be valuable. But it takes all of us saying we're in. And we're at a time in our lives where We're just exhausted. Everybody's exhausted. So we have to decide. We can't do the toxic, you better be there, or shame. We can't do that. But we need to, at the same time, have a way to decide, when am I too tired and I need to take care of myself? Or when do I have to push through that and have some intention about community? And I struggled for quite a bit on how we do that. And there's probably lots of conclusions, and maybe we can talk about some of those and what are you thinking, but one of the ones that I came to is we have to make that decision not based on how I feel right now. So if I'm tired because I had a really busy day, I have a decision to make on, am I gonna bail on book club or life story group? And maybe I should bail. Maybe I really need to go to sleep early, and I really need to rest, and I need to text and say I just can't make it. But maybe I need to push through the tired that night. And how do I tell? The one thing that I came up with was maybe we could think about that from a long-term perspective or bring the long-term perspective in and not just think about how do I feel right now. Because right now, clearly, I'm tired. But how am I gonna feel in five years when the crisis comes and my life falls apart? Or I get the unthinkable call as I've gotten in my life that there's gonna be an accident and your daughter, or there was an accident and your daughter's not going to wake up. And this community rallied around me. Because those moments are going to come in all of our life. We're gonna have times like that in our life. So, we might enter that into the, remind ourselves of that when we make the decision, do I bail or not? So, just to wrap up, um, what about you? Um, what gifts, as uh, Dr. Kimmerer would say, what, what gifts do you have? That's your responsibility to the community. If you're in, you know, now, you know, some of you are new and you're just checking this out, and, that, and that's fine, that's perfect. But at some point, make a decision to be in at some community. If it's not this one, find one. It's really important for you. And be in. Take it seriously, be committed to it. See what gifts you bring, and that's your responsibility to the community, and take that responsibility seriously. So, in, in our what are you thinking questions that we're gonna do in a minute, and I'll, I'll tell you what they are now, and then we'll close, and those of you who are um, live streaming will be uh, able to, to log into the Zoom. What are you thinking? And those of us in the room after a, a short break will do what are you thinking here. But the questions that we're going to talk about is, first of all, an experience that showed you the value of intentional community. So an experience you had, you can be thinking about that and what about that experience was meaningful. And then an insight of how you could be a curator of intentional community and you can be helping restitch that torn fabric. So that's what we'll be doing, both um, online and here in the room. So bef- right before we do that, um, it's time for our offering, and um, we don't do the offering like JT's church used to. We're we're a little different. We we do it online, and. Um, As the former treasurer of Common Thread, um, I am grateful for this community because you are a generous bunch. And it doesn't take um, pleading and begging and um, all kinds of antics to get you to give. And I think it's because you realize that what we have is really cool. Uh, We have something that is really worth investing in. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. Uh, we give online. You can go to the website and do that. You can b- sign up on the website to have um, automatic giving happen, which makes it really easy. Or, or you can do one-time gifts as well. So Doug is going to dismiss us, and then we're going to do the. What are you thinking? Not yet. Have a listen. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Sorry, this is a good one. We'd love to connect with you in real life, Common Threadchurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life, commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer. And if you would like to take an ownership stake in the well being of the community we all contribute online you will find a donate button at the top of our website see you next time we would love to connect with you in real life commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer and if you